Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this edition, our featured guest is John Petrino, Managing Director and Co-Head of the Real Estate Lodging and Leisure Investment Banking Team at Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on October 10, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to our episode discussing the future of commercial real estate. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here with John Petrino, Managing Director and Co-Head of the Real Estate, Lodging, and Leisure Investment Banking Team at Oppenheimer. Now, in today's post-COVID world, the commercial real estate market seems to be bearing the brunt of many of the challenging forces, higher interest rates, and changing work patterns. Certainly, the prices of public market REITs are reflecting a lot of these anxieties. So here, we're going to take a look at the current state of the commercial real estate market. We'll discuss the large, looming debt maturities and the implications for borrowers and investors. We'll try to identify what investors should know about potential bright spots and ongoing risks. John Petrino, our guide here, has over 25 years of investment banking experience. He's completed over 200 transactions representing an aggregate value of over $100 billion. He's at the center of acquisitions, divestitures, financings, company sales, so he knows this stuff. So John, welcome to your first episode of Let's Talk Future. Thanks, Jane. It's great to be here. Okay, well, why don't we jump in with the and discuss the current rather uneasy state of the commercial real estate market. Can you orient us with where we're at? Sure. The state is indeed uneasy. You know, after all, real estate is literally everywhere and the market for it is very much a function of everything else that's going on around us and in the economy. Real estate's buffered from change, of course, because landlords charge a rent to their tenants, businesses, or individuals, frankly, somewhat regardless of how they're doing. So the rent generally moves up and sometimes down, but it's usually at a measured and predictable pace. Consequently, investors value real estate on the yield it provides. It's steady, predictable cash flow, and it can be carved up between lenders and owners and even multiple owners. A lot of the uneasiness is the same uneasiness I I think that we're feeling elsewhere in the economy as a result of being on the other side of COVID. That environment fertilized and accelerated many changes in the way we live that affect real estate. Very specifically, you know, certain technological innovations that were rapidly deployed and adopted during COVID. Many of them were there before, but adoption got accelerated. We certainly all shop more from home now on, uh, say, Amazon. We also work very freely from home now, at least sometimes. We can use apps like Zoom and DocuSign, and we keep our productivity pretty high, even if we're not in the office. 
can also vacation more, frankly, because we don't have to be as uh, tethered to the office or more self-sufficient when we're traveling because, you know, look, Amazon and Uber Eats work there too if you're on vacation anywhere, you know, in th this part of the world. So this technological innovation has certainly made the world a smaller place, and it's also led to some migration. Some of us have you know, migrated in our local areas, and others have moved pretty far away to places where we can have an easier lifestyle, perhaps pay lower taxes, and keep the same job you know, in, in the city that we were working in uh, previously. COVID also caused a you know, pretty substantial reaction from the government, you know, both during the pandemic, if you recall, the payroll protection program. And then subsequently with the you know, about $4.7 trillion of capital that's being spent around the economy from the you know, American Recovery Plan, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know, more to do with climate than inflation, chips and so forth. So that money's being spent even now. It's it's inflationary in nature and it's it's not atypical. You know, we have a calamity, a war or a pandemic in this case. It's pretty common to have lots of spending and some inflation that that follows it. This is all very relevant for real estate because in a world of relative returns, higher interest rates uh, have an impact and the interest rates are generally based on U.S. government borrowing rates. And, you know, those are subject uh, to, to, in, to inflation. A lot of our important initiatives are inflationary in nature. Bringing the supply chain here from abroad is reversing a trend which has had it going towards cheaper labor for decades, probably since the Berlin Wolf fell. And, you know, certainly a change your energy policy is going to add some cost. So this all matters for real estate. And, you know, if 5% is now 2%, then, you know, commercial real estate investors are going to expect more yield for their dollars. Okay, well, let's stay on that because that really seems to be the crux of things. So higher interest rates, how has that affected property values? Not good, right? No, not at all. So... A few years ago, if you bought a building that had $5 million of income, you might have bought that at a valuation to earn a 5% yield. That's about a 20 times multiple if you, if you look at the inversion. Well, today, with interest rates 2 to 3% higher, you'd probably want to yield more like 7.5% for that same building. That $5 million, if you price it to yield 75 is only $67 million. That's a 13 times multiple versus a 20 uh, previously. So that's a 33% reduction in value. That's sufficient to wipe out the equity if the property was uh, pretty levered. Uh, the, op the landlord would have an opportunity perhaps to offset that by increasing the operating income of the property, but the landlord would have to increase it by 50% in that example to keep the value at 100 million dollars. And that's something that doesn't happen overnight. So as a consequence, the transaction environment has been very quiet. Owners have been in no rush to refinance or sell. Uh, they'd rather wait it out and hope for a lower rate environment with higher valuations. That challenge is exacerbated in some of the sectors like office, which are under pressure due to dynamics that are not cyclical. You know, real estate's a spread business. So the only way to achieve an appropriate return in a higher rate environment is to buy at a lower lower price. That's the attitude that buyers have today. The public market REITs have already experienced a substantial downturn in their valuations. They've gone down about 30% since the Fed started the uh, rate hike cycle last March. Private market owners, however, are, are simply not 
like the REITs, so they're simply just not not transacting. And you know, they will eventually, when loans come due, particularly loans on more highly levered uh, properties, and that will result in forced refinancings, restructurings, and then ultimately sales. Let's stay on that for a second. So you talked about loans coming due. In addition to higher interest rates and declining property values, that's another big looming problem here, the big debt maturities that that are coming up ahead in the next few years. So can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. There's nearly $2 trillion of commercial real estate debt that is coming due between now and the end of 2025. Okay, wait. Two two trillion dollars by the end of 2025. That's a huge number. It is. The Mortgage Bankers Association calculates that 728 billion of that is maturing just this year. Some of which has probably been refinanced, and there's another 659 billion maturing next year. A substantial portion of the debt coming due is floating rate debt on assets like hotels that typically financed floating rather than fixed, and they're maturing into an environment with a much higher underlying base rate. So given that huge amount of debt that's coming due, what are the lenders and borrowers going to, how are they going to navigate this? Is this going to look like the financial crisis? I don't think it's going to look quite like the financial crisis. Every one of these Market events we we have, and there's usually one or two a decade, has a different set of characteristics. In this instance, it's a much more slow moving, and a lot of the loans didn't come from banks so much as from what we refer to as non-bank lenders. But as the debt comes due, there's you know there are a handful of options the parties have. They can extend the maturity. That's a in hope that perhaps the market will be better and there'll be a refinancing available to pay off the existing lender and maintain the ownership position of the owner. On the other extreme, the lender could foreclose on the property, take the collateral. That's complicated. You know, Banks and lenders really don't want to take collateral. They're not really equipped for it, particularly if it's, you know, say, an office building that might be better suited to be an apartment building. That requires a lot of work and expertise and a lot of more capital, by the way. They can recapitalize the properties by bringing in uh, new subordinated debt or preferred equity to pay to help pay down and right-size the balance sheet and keep the owner in with the potential for further appreciation. This could be quite expensive, though, because that money earns a nice return for its investors. This dynamic could become more complicated for the borrower should the lender sell the loan directly or as part of a portfolio to an investor that does want the property. Yeah. So, but to stay on that, so given that huge amount of debt, you don't expect that this is going to be a huge problem for the big commercial banks over the next few years? You know, it shouldn't be. There have already been some issues uh, that the banks have experienced, as we saw earlier this year when a few large banks ran into trouble. You know, capital moves very fast. You can withdraw your bank account today on your, your iPhone. That being said, uh, the system's different. The two big to fail banks are held to pretty high capital ratios. They're pretty heavily regulated uh, now. The way the regulations have affected the market, there's much better alignment today between the group that makes the loan and earns the fees from originating it versus the group that takes the actual credit risk today. So I don't expect there to be you know, the systemic issues like there were then. Well, that is good 
to hear. And while we're on a bit of positivity here, then why don't we talk about some of the sectors that you think have a favorable outlook in the world of commercial real estate? You know, we we hear a lot about the demand for warehouses. There are places where there's going to be some really nice growth ahead, right? That's right. Uh, warehouses, which were the least exciting portion of <laughs> real estate when I began to pay attention to the sector professionally, are pretty exciting today because somewhere between when the, where the good gets manufactured in a manufactured in a factory and when it arrives at your house, it's going to go through a series of warehouses. It used to go to the mall and and you'd, you'd buy it there. So well, retail's fallen out of favor. Warehouses, industrial, logistic based properties have become very exciting. And that should continue to be the case in a world of growing uh, technology, you know, unless Amazon starts owning them themselves, which would be a change in their their, their, their business model. Of course, Amazon has trucks now uh, too, so who knows? Data centers are also quite interesting. The amount of data we consume has just grown and grown and seems like it will continue to grow with AI. There were $48 billion of data center acquisitions in 2022. 91% of that came from private equity, including some very smart money at you know very firms with terrific reputations. You know, there's some other areas with favorable outlooks too. You know, home building is certainly drawing the benefit of, of migration to new areas where living could be a little little easier. The way we travel has changed too for leisure purposes. COVID popularized working from home and it also allowed us to work more uh, freely so we can take our vacation in a house now instead of a hotel. That's something that's come in really through Airbnb and Verbo. And you know the market for vacation rental homes is growing quite nicely. It's also growing within the hotel sector for you know, some niches that have very strong business models and allow for flexibility and use labor very efficiently, if you will. That would include select service and all-inclusive hotels. Even apartment-like accommodations are starting to become in favor. Most of the brands are looking to add that type of experience because you know you don't need room room service so much anymore when you can order Uber Eats at your at your hotel. So, well, that's good to hear. What about the problematic areas? It just seems to me that they're going to stay problematic for a while. Office space, malls, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, exactly. It's the other side of the coin. Malls have been struggling for years. You know, many of them are well located in downtown areas and could be redeveloped into, say, senior housing or, or apartments. You're already seeing that in a lot of the cities around the country. Office is really out of uh, favor now. Prices have dropped by about 31%. It was struggling a little before COVID. I think WeWork had become the preeminent tenant, certainly in, in New York City. They're in distress today. But the net of it is because you'll be able to work less in the office and you already are, and you can hotel when you are in the office, companies just don't need as much uh, space. So they're seeking to cut their real estate expense or redeploy it into better space effectively for the same money. So the class A properties are certainly okay, but when you get start dropping down in tier, you you start to run into all sorts of challenges. Or in markets where the downtown area, San Francisco's problems have been very well publicized and the office market there has you know, really, um, really collapsed in, in value. 
And so also a matter of where they're located, not just what type of property you're considering. There are other properties that are still very high quality and generating a lot of yield, you know, apartment buildings, self-storage facilities, and so forth. They're in distress. It's solely because of the change in the yield environment. It's not because there are issues with their businesses at all. Back on that point about lower occupancy and declining property values, it seems like there's been an ongoing effort to kind of rethink the use of some of this space. I'm a big advocate of office spaces being used for indoor pickleball, for example. But, you know, I know universities have been buying some commercial buildings. Where are we in that process of rethinking usage and bringing in new buyers? Well, real estate generally finds its way to the highest and best use. Sometimes it takes a while for that to happen because conversions are very expensive and they often require regulatory and zoning approval. So you see that where our office is here at Oppenheimer in the financial district, we're surrounded by apartment buildings today. 20 years ago, you would would not have seen any golden retrievers walking around the neighborhood at lunchtime. Now you see them. It takes a while, but eventually things migrate. And a lot of migration, by the way, of office uh, into university use. There are a lot of campuses in in urban areas and it's a a natural and good use of, of the space. It seems so to me. Well, on this podcast, which is called Let's Talk Future, we like to talk future. So given everything that you've said, I'd like you to draw your attention ahead and kind of characterize for us how you're thinking about the state of the commercial real estate market in the next few years. Ultimately, it's a spread business. So interest rates, inflation rates, and so forth really do matter. Real estate, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, is everywhere. It's all around us and it will continue to be all around us. It's just a matter of what happens to the different classes of investors along the way. If we run into a significant area of distress, you'll see lots of buildings handed over to lenders who will eventually sell them. If we have an easy recovery and back into lower interest rate environment, then you'll see lots of refinancing and not much change in ownership. If high rates stay, high yields are going to be required and the whole sector will reset to a higher cost of capital and a higher return requirement, but a spread for the investor and lender. And historically, in that process of resetting rates, where are investors served to be looking to kind of put money in that process? Well, the environment this fall has been very grim, as uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are aware. But to quote Warren Buffett, it's wise for investors to be fearful when others are greedy and to be greedy when others are fearful. Today's environment does offer some terrific opportunities. In the short run, you know, there are certainly some good lenders and mortgage REITs that have clean balance sheets and capital to lend in a very favorable uh, demand dynamic where they can earn exceptional returns on safe loans. Some of these lenders have pretty high-yielding common and preferred uh, dividends to offer, and they also have bonds that offer high yields uh, too. In the midterm, there are lots of terrific opportunities, I think, in home building due to the just the growth of household formation and migration into the U.S. where short houses. As a corollary to that, uh, single-family REITs offer houses that could be rented. There are some big ones like Invitation Homes and American Homes for Rent and others that haven't come 
public yet, like Vinebrook Homes, that offer houses as accommodations at very affordable rents, and they provide a terrific alternative to apartments for uh, families in, in particular. There are also some companies with efficient business models, you know, poised to benefit from changes in, in travel. Hyatt, for example, which acquired Apple Leisure Group, which has a terrific all-inclusive hotel business. They've acquired a number of lifestyle hotel brands that are in touch with consumer taste, I believe. And there's Playa Resorts, which is a company that owns a num number of these hotels. That's, that's public. They have very high margins, like select service hotels, but they provide a terrific vacation experience. And then, of course, long run, there are lots of terrific opportunities. One that's been there and will come again, I think, is senior living. Senior living had some terrible issues, of course, during COVID and still faces uh, labor challenges and the dynamics of a supply uh, demand boom bust cycle that you have uh, sometimes in exciting parts of real estate. But the first wave of baby boomers is soon to turn 80, and the number of people over 65 is expected to grow, I think, by 44% by the year 2032, that's versus 5% for the overall population. It's not just that people are getting older, but they're also living a lot longer. So there's very strong fundamentals in that business. And of course, there are always adaptive reuse opportunities in cities and towns around the country. The local economy just needs to be vibrant and then opportunities will abound. It's all about the highest and best use. There you go. The highest and best use. Well, John, thank you for doing your first episode with us. It's certainly a timely and very large topic. So we appreciate your time here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, and so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.